research that resonates. Schweitzer has not been wrong on any of his years and years of reporting on the Bidens. Investigations that matter. If your last name wasn't Biden, do you think you would have been asked to be on the board of Burisma? I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. But that's, you know, I, I don't think that there's a lot of things that would have happened in my life that, uh, that if my last name wasn't Biden. The only entities, the only people that would report on this, and Peter Schweitzer, who deserves a Medal of Freedom, in my view. This is The Drill Down with Peter Schweitzer. Welcome to The Drill Down, where we relentlessly expose cronyism and corruption in the federal government. As you may have guessed, I am not Peter Schweitzer. I am Eric Eggers, the vice president of the Government Accountability Institute. And today, because he's one of the nicest, but also most low-key competitive people you'll meet, Peter Schweitzer is actually joining me remotely from some swanky confines. Hey, Peter. Uh, hey, Eric, it's great to be here. But how does me being gone make me competitive? Because last week was sort of my week. I was out. I was the featured speaker. I was making the rounds. I was presenting. <laughs> I was traveling. And you couldn't just let me have a moment, could you? No, you have to. Now you're traveling. You're out there making not one, but a number of speeches. You're spreading knowledge. You're the Johnny Appleseed of wisdom <laughs> and anti-political cronyism knowledge uh, throughout the country. And so, you know, you're out there just making it about you this week. That's why. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, it is uh, uh, taxing to be on the road, but I'm enjoying it. Uh, of course, one of the big benefits of being on the road is I don't get harassed by you. Uh, and I would imagine that probably some of the Supreme Court justices might be feeling that way because they are distinctly facing harassment right now because there are protesters outside of their homes due to the leaked opinion regarding Roe versus Wade. And we thought that's something we could talk about today. What a what a what a segue! Uh, in fact, yeah, it's an interesting thing. In fact, about these protests and the the people that are hanging out outside the homes of the Supreme Court justices, there's actually a federal law. I didn't realize this that prohibits private citizens from attempting to influence a court decision by organizing a picket or a parade near a building that's housing a court in the United States or uh, near residences of people like judges. Well, that's right. And also the U.S. Senate just passed a security bill to extend police protection to Supreme Court justices' families, uh, giving them around-the-clock security. Um, because, of course, Washington, D.C. is bracing for potential security risks. They've erected an eight-foot wall uh, around the Supreme Court building. And I got to tell you, Eric, this is, I think, a really, really important issue because, generally speaking, at GAI, we are in favor of transparency. We don't right. like it when powerful people in Washington, D.C. say, hey, we're going to put together the federal budget and we're going to do it in secret because they hide things. They, they, they put things in bills that we don't know the full meaning of, and then they try to ram them through quickly. What you have with the Supreme Court, however, is I would argue a need for security because, of course, they're making profoundly important decisions. They need to make them outside of the vacuum of all this kind of political pressure. And unlike a bill where they can do something in secret and spring a surprise later, Supreme Court decisions really aren't like that. What you see is basically what you get. So I think it makes sense. And I think it's appropriate uh, that they're taking these security measures. Yeah, it's actually a key distinction. I hadn't thought about this because members of Congress and members of the United States Senate, they're elected and they're elected to be representatives of the people. They have constituents that they're ultimately responsible to and beholden to and they're stewards of tax dollars, right? So it's a very different type of job than a Supreme Court justice 
who is not elected, but as Al Sharpton would say, selected and uh, then chosen to administer and uphold the laws of the court. So you're right. It's a, it's a different thing, but I think it's a key distinction. That's why we're o- okay with some level of secrecy and ultimately as it's become necessary security in Washington, D.C. I guess my question would be, given all the fact, all the protections that are happening, we've got this eight foot non-scalable fence, by the way, which uh-huh. I, think a, I wish yep. they sold that at Home Depot <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and the protection, you'd think we'd be hearing from the White House about it. Yeah. And we're not, of course. And this to me is, is really a shocking, uh, devastating position that the White House has taken. Look, you can have political differences. You can want Roe v. Wade to remain in place. You can want it changed. But the point is, is you cannot be intimidating the courts and the White House is silence on this. And and by the way, it's clear they're intimidating the courts because, Eric, we're granted a First Amendment right to protest, right, to express our opinions and beliefs. But they're not protesting in front of the Supreme Court, you know, where the media is, where the actual decisions are going to be made. They're taking it a step further and going to these people's homes, uh, which to me is tantamount to harassment. Uh, and the White House has been silent on this. The White House has basically said, okay, we don't want violence, but people have a right to do this. And to me, these are not protests. This is not First Amendment. This is about intimidation. You're basically telling somebody, I know where you live. I disagree with your opinion. I'm going to make your life miserable if you don't vote the way I want you to vote. I will say, having done some research for this podcast, though, uh, I mean, as as much as it's a a dangerous precedent and the White House's silence or relative complicity in terms of like they're not against it, so people interpret how they want to, it's troubling, it's disheartening. But having done some research now in terms of the judicial intimidation tactics that have previously experienced during the civil rights movement, part of which we'll talk about today, uh, today's stuff seems relatively tame. By comparison, but that but that's an example of why we're talking about it because it's such an emotional topic, it's such a charged thing that I think sometimes people might miss things in the discussion. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, and look, this isn't the first time we've been here, right? There have been uh, leaked cases, as happened in this case uh, in the past. Uh, I was actually surprised that uh, you know the Washington Post back in June of seventy two when they were looking at Roe versus Wade, uh, that they actually got leaked documents of the court's internal deliberations, including a memo from Justice William O. Douglas. uh, And that was about Roe versus Wade. So this has happened before. But when we looked at the press accounts, Eric, I didn't see uh, the Nixon administration encouraging people to go out and protest in front of the Supreme Court. And I didn't see them showing up at Justice Douglas's house either. There's a lot of really interesting and weird um, and I think historically notable aspects of the Roe versus Wade decision and some of the circumstances surrounding it. But yeah, the first one is, as you noted, for all the hand wringing, for all the, oh my gosh, whoever leaked this decision will never work in law again. And I think people are rightfully upset. They, they rightfully see it as this breach of this sacred and sanctimonious trust that the Supreme Court yeah. holds and it's distinct and set apart type of deal. As you noted, this happened before. The Roe versus Wade case itself was leaked not once but twice. Leaked the first time in June 1972, as you said. And then this is wild to me. Um, <laughs> time magazine actually scooped the decision because oh. they, they got a, a, a heads up that it was happening. And then I think the announcement of the decision was actually delayed. And so the Time magazine publication hit the stands before the actual decision 
was made public. So in a sense, Time Magazine broke the decision. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, that's amazing. So it's happened in the past. Uh, but again, I don't remember there being, uh, you know, intimidating protests uh, outside of Supreme Court justices. Uh, houses. And I guess, Eric, you know, for me, we research a lot and discuss a lot the legislative process, the executive branch, corruption, conflicts of interest. And of course, in, in the Supreme Court and the criminal justice system, you have those things at play it too. But we at least try to, when it comes to the judicial system, embrace this notion that justice is supposed to be blind, right? Lady, Lady Justice, you know, she's got the scales in her hand. What does she have on her face? She has a blindfold. She has a blindfold because she's not supposed to factor in anything else except the law. And, you know, why are you showing up by the hundreds doing wacky things outside of justice's homes? Because you're trying to get them not to be blind and focus on the issues, but instead be intimidated by the political process. So it shows to me just another example of the decline of America's political culture. We can't seem to tolerate, at least the political left can't seem to tolerate uh, opinions or decisions that they agree with, that, that they disagree with. They want to intimidate people to try to get them to change. Well, your insistence on a blind and neutral uh, judiciary system is actually one of the many reasons why you're greater than some of our founding fathers. Uh That and your complete rejection of French culture is what gives you a leg up on (laughs) Thomas Jefferson. I mean, you want to talk about there's Francophiles and there's people that hate the French. And Peter Schweitzer is so anti-French. He refuses to even – he still still calls them freedom fries is what you need to know (laughs) about Peter Schweitzer. (laughs) No, but why you're better than Thomas Jefferson is because uh, Thomas Jefferson is part of the research – actually uh, tried to get a justice, did get a a justice on the United States Supreme Court, uh, Samuel Chase, impeached for, quote, unbecoming conduct uh, when he was a circuit judge in 1804. And that's just because he was trying to do this continuing assault on the Federalist-dominated judiciary. Uh, Justice Chase, for his part, was impeached but not convicted. So uh, lots of people have lots of problems with judges. Judicial intimidation can take lots of forms, not the least of which would be a sitting president attempting to get a justice impeached. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And of course, any time a Supreme Court decision comes up now, remember Barack Obama was so angry with the Supreme Court decision that during the State of the Union address, he actually called out the Supreme Court. Uh, go back in history, remember Brown versus the Board of Education, that that very important uh, uh you know, Supreme Court case involving uh, racial discrimination in the United States, Earl Warren, who was a Supreme Court justice, was threatened with impeachment. But here's the difference in my mind, Eric, that, you know, judges are appointed by whom? They're appointed by elected officials, by presidents. Yeah. Uh, I thought what Barack Obama did was distasteful. I think what Thomas Jefferson did here was not good. But that is part of the actual political process. What I think we're slipping into when it comes to these protests out of justices' homes, is mob rule, uh, physical intimidation. And a guy like Joe Biden is so cowardly uh, that rather than he himself just, you know, calling out the Supreme Court in speech, he's letting this sort of mob rule basically do his bidding. Well, you know what? I have to backtrack a little bit because I said what the justices are facing today in terms of the, the public protests outside their homes is tame compared to what other justices have gone through. But I guess you could also say it's a first step towards what the justices during the civil rights era went through, right? And because that's why I say, well, it's a little tame. So there was this judge, uh, Robert Marriage, and he had a lot of desegregation cases in the South in the late 60s and early uh, 1960s. As you might imagine, there was quite a few different things happened to him or, you know, very emotionally charged environment. Sure. Threats to abduct his young son. 
mm. were commonplace. Yeah. And they actually had their family dog shot in the yard. Wow. And that's wow. A, a judge. And that's why I say, okay, have some people with signs on across the street. But this is a real thing. And of course, judge marriage never ju- never ducked. Uh, there was a judge in Alabama. Well, let's, go Al- back to, let's go back to the marriage case really quick, yeah. not to dissect it. But, you know, I'm looking at this and I have got to believe that when those threats came in and when the dog was killed, there was actually a police investigation and they found the people in, responsible for the intimidation uh, and they actually did something about it. Right. Uh, I Really? I disagree. You disagree? You don't you think, think Alabama, that, you think Alabama or Mississippi cops in the sixties are real concerned about I, I think you're stereotyping. I think you're uh, well, saying sure, sure. I mean I, I think I think yeah, sure. There were certainly people who turned a blind eye, but I guess what I would say is I would like to imagine and think that even back then, if there were intimidations taking place and it involves lawbreaking, that somebody would do something about it. Otherwise it's lawless. And I'm looking at what's happening now, of course, or haven't been as far as we know threats to abduct some abduct somebody's child or a dog's killed, but you have intimidation. The problem that I have is nobody seems to be doing anything about it when it clearly, as you pointed out, is a violation of the law. Well, it's an important point you're making, but I'm going to not be important. And I'm going to double down. I'm going to say, I think, in fact, I think it was the cop that was charged with protecting the dog that shot the dog. That's what I think happened. So, Are you going on the record? Because we, we, uh, we, we got to be clear about this. We don't want to get sued. No. <laughs> <laughs> There's got to be a pun for a canine cold case that I'm not going to make. But the point is, this, this, this did happen. But uh, no, but, but to your point, it, it, someone had to stand up for the rule of law. Um, and it, look, there were actually the reason why desegregation happened was because the law enforcement officers at the time did enforce that law Correct. right as much as they didn't want to. And to your point, you got now the commander in chief of the army who's suggesting that a federal law that should prohibit this activity around Supreme Court justice houses uh, enforcing it's not a priority now in alabama this was just kind of wild there's this judge frank johnson he was actually okay. a classmate of george wallace in law okay mm-hmm. and so imagine you know alabama civil rights cases desegregation cases he had cases that dealt with rosa parks and the bus boycotts he had cases that dealt with martin luther king and could they march to selma and he regularly sided with the civil rights activists and as you might imagine that did not go over incredibly well in his area yeah mountains of hate mail scores of threatening telephone calls Mm. crosses were burned on his lawn twice and this is the kicker for me his mother's home was firebombed although she was not hurt Mm. and uh, federal marshals to your point had to protect the judge and his family so um yeah that's why i say it kind of makes what we're looking at today in terms of elected officials and even judges somewhat tame yeah. And, and the point is, you know, when you look at this intimidation from the civil rights era, you look at the intimidation today, are you prepared to be consistent, right? I mean, if you believe judge intimidation was wrong in the 1960s, as it was, you should believe that judge intimidation is wrong now. And we certainly don't know what's going on. If there's a hate mail being sent, I imagine there is, if threats are being made. Uh, but this is designed to get the court to move in a direction that they don't want to go. And it's using fear and intimidation as a tool in a powerful way. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about judges, but in recent history, uh, there's other intimidation that's taken place. Remember, uh, Senator Kristen Sinema was actually followed into the bathroom over her vote on an infrastructure bill. This wasn't even a controversial uh, uh, issue uh, like Roe v. Wade or a uh, really uh, a toxic issue like uh, racial issues in the South. This was a freaking infrastructure bill, uh, and they were trying to harass and intimidate her to get a vote in a way uh, that she didn't want to vote. Well, I think the emotional 
context of it there was there was some climate change stuff related to it, right? So it was okay. like, okay, like you're going to cause us all to die. The oceans will right. rise. That's why I'm falling in this bathroom. This bathroom might be the only place left after the oceans have swallowed up yeah. the entire nation. No, but you're right. It's um, And Kristen Sinema, there's a high profile case, not alone. In 2020, this was wild to me, 9,000 cases in the Capitol Police's threat assessment section in terms of members of Congress and their wow. families and the threats that they faced. Um, that's like some, 30 a day. That's like 30 a day, right? If my math look, is right. Look at Math Monty over here. Thank you. Thank Not even you. using a calculator. Thank you. Now we know why I run the organization. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's it. That's the reason. <laughs> but now, that's an a, astounding number. That's an astounding hmm. number when you think about it. And it's not just phone calls. Um, it's, it's been reported. Some of even members of Congress have even had dead animals left at their homes, oh. which sounds bad. But I think you have to consider the context because oh. in some Southern cultures, leaving a dead animal is actually a courting ritual. You know, like <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah, you know, like old Velda May got a raccoon left on her windshield. That means Bobby like, must have really like her. Was that really a thing? He only left Daisy a squirrel. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. This is all alien to me. But let's just be clear for the record. Eric Eggers is not encouraging the use of dead animals in, in courtship or intimidation. Hey, shoot your shot, player, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, so, you know, here's the, here's the question as we step back. Um, do you think that intimidation is going to get worse or get better? I think it's going to get worse. And I think part of the problem is it's like any criminal activity. And again, we're not saying you can't protest, you can't express your views, but when you're showing up at people's houses, that seems to be a clear violation of the federal law. You are intimidating people. And it's like any law, if you fail to enforce the law, mm -hmm. you're going to get more of it because people can get away with it. And to me, it's, it's you know, kind of analogous to January 6th. I mean, my view on January 6th was if people broke the law, if you, you know, smashed a podium, if you smashed a, a window, um, if you threatened somebody uh, in the Capitol building, you should be charged with the law. I don't like these political crimes, insurrection, all this sort of stuff. I'm not saying you judge uh, or, or go after these protesters in front of the Supreme Court building saying it's insurrection. They're trying to overthrow the court. But you focus on the actual behavior in a non-political context. And I think the problem is they seem to be throwing the book at the guys in January 6th, which, okay, if you want to do that, do that. But they're not throwing the book at people who are engaged in other intimidating activity. We're going to get more of it. And we're going to get more of it from the left because it does not seem to be enforced when they engage in it. Well, and to the point, actually, it's an interesting parallel with the Roe versus Wade case specifically, because while it was technically illegal um, in the 1950s and 60s, as different cultural trends emerged, the number of estimated illegal abortions actually rose from 200,000 to as many as 1.2 million a year. Speaking to you, if you don't enforce something, then you're going to get more of it. And just an interesting historical context, you know, Roe versus Wade occurred before I was born. I'm not sure how much knowledge you had of some of the surrounding circumstances of it. But so that the German measles outbreak, I think in the mid 60s kind of changed at the dangers that posed to unborn children helped change some mindsets. And so what happened is these lawyers in Texas started looking for a case to recruit somebody essentially to challenge the law. So, I mean, right. that, that was fascinating to me is it wasn't necessarily an organic thing, but this lady, uh, Norma McCorvey, which Jane Rowe was the pseudonym for, uh, unmarried woman got pregnant in the 19, in 1970 
And, you know, she had a ninth grade education. She'd previously given up a child for adoption, but she met these two lawyers and these lawyers essentially convinced her to pursue this and to, to challenge the, the court with it. Yeah, it kind of became a stalking horse, right? This became the case that they uh, wedded themselves to as a movement. And uh, if I remember, uh, she later on reversed course and thought that she had uh, that she had made a mistake. I think she uh, uh, became a uh, Christian and um, said that she regretted uh, what she had done. But that aside. The point is, is I was at the time of Roe v. Wade nine years old and yeah. uh, living up to my nerd reputation. I actually was watching the news when I was nine years old. I also remember the Watergate hearings. And what I remember is when that court case came down, I don't remember Catholic nuns uh, going to Supreme Court houses and threatening and chanting and intimidating them. I don't remember pro-life protesters harassing and following Supreme Court justices into the bathroom and intimidation. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, that there aren't individual circumstances, but I think it's pretty safe to say, I mean, Eric, you can, you can challenge me on this if you want. This is much more a tactic of the left than no, it I is of the right. I think that's right. I will say a little historical context might explain it, but I don't disagree with your point at all. But just two other interesting things. Number one, part of the reason why you might not have seen these protests is because the ruling came down two two days after Nixon was sworn in for his second term. And also, I think the news of the ruling was overshadowed in the newspaper headlines because Lyndon Johnson also died at the age of 64. So Uh, it wasn't necessarily like the biggest story of the day. You had Nixon's uh, reelection and then Johnson's death. The other thing, too, is do you know did you know who the Wade is in Roe versus Wade? I don't listen to this. I mean, speaking of uh, Nixon and LBJ, there's also a JFK connection to uh, Roe v. Wade. Henry Wade was the Dallas County District Attorney who enforced the Texas abortion law. He did earned attention a decade earlier because he was scheduled to prosecute Lee Harvey Oswald. Oh, wow. uh, but you know something happened. He didn't. So instead, <laughs> so instead, he do, do, I dare, do I dare say that Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, that that Jack Ruby, there was a there was a, an abortion that took place there too. Oh my gosh! No, I, you know that's uh, that's up to you and uh, your thing. <laughs> Some people might not be familiar with the story. You know, you don't want to give away the, the surprise ending. So he he ended up prosecuting Jack Ruby instead of Lee Harvey Oswald. Yes, that's but exactly that's, right. But that's the Wade guy. So yeah. Anyway, just kind of weird stuff I didn't know about. Roe v. Wade. But but to your point, um, this is not going to, I mean, it's happening now because of the political leaked draft. Imagine what will happen when the actual case is announced and the cultural ramifications of it. Uh, present, I mean, the eight foot scale of the eight foot unscalable fence might not be enough. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's right. I mean, it seems like they're, they're loaded for bear. And let's also remember it's an election year, uh, 2022, and there's a political component as much as I think in 2020, a lot of the, uh, you know, rioting and protesting we saw with Black Lives Matters, there were people there that were earnestly, uh, embracing that issue, but there was a political motive behind it. They wanted to energize Democratic voters. And there's no question this is the reason that Joe Biden and a lot of Democrat leaders are encouraging, uh, these protesters because they see this as a way of actually keeping control of the Democratic majorities in the House and the Senate by angering and getting voters excited over Roe v. Wade. That's a tough thing, right? One of the things we study here is incentive structures. And if you, it's a really interesting point to, to contextualize what happened in 2020, the Black Lives Matter protest, I think were some of it organically generated by what was perceived to be decades-long systems of injustices. Absolutely. But to your point, why did 
why was some of the activity encouraged? Because they saw it as an energizing factor with political consequences, which if you look at the results of the elections of 2027 would say that that's exactly what happened. And so now, to your point, now that there's actual potential lives on the line in terms of the families and the homes of these justices, you've got this precedent, not a, not a legal precedent, but a cultural and political precedent that we're going to support people doing these types of things because the incentives actually are aligned for the people in power and it does create potentially a dangerous situation. Yeah, yeah. And it's because we've got a law enforcement component in this country. We've seen it, unfortunately, with the FBI, with law enforcement at the local level, that seems to be very selective uh, in the way in which they choose to enforce these laws. They throw the books at uh, those on the political right, I would argue, and sometimes that's justified, but they generally let the political left get away with it. And and let's, let's be clear, whatever one's view is on Roe v. Wade, we don't really tackle those kinds of issues here at the Government Accountability. Institute. For those of you who are paying attention to this, let's recognize that the, what, what we're talking about is overturning a Supreme Court decision. Uh, a decision, by the way, that Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself said was poorly constructed, that did not reflect what she saw was in the Constitution. I saw a piece in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend, a law professor at Yale University who's pro-choice, who made the same point that Roe v. Wade was actually a terrible decision from a lawyer's standpoint uh, because it, it pulled things out of the Constitution that did not exist. So, you know, what I would say to people who feel passionate about this, who are angry about it being overturned, recognize that when you're talking about the legal construct of that decision, even Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself said it was a lousy decision the way that it was put together. Hey, it must be Tuesday if Peter Schweitzer is quoting RBG. <laughs> Yeah, I have to say, and this is a, a, an aside, I actually uh, had to talk about, if, if you remember, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. I was on, uh, I was going to be on Tucker Carlson's show to talk about something completely different. Pause. And, this is where Peter Schweitzer relates to the average American. Guys, let me tell you how tough my life is. <laughs> well, I'll just tell you, it's one of those unique times that you can attest to this where I was actually kind of speechless yeah. because I was supposed to get in the chair to talk about one thing, political corruption, and Ginsburg had died on my way to the studio. So I got to the studio. I was about 10 minutes early, and the, the guy behind the camera said, they want you in the chair now. And I said, okay. And I sat down and he said, they want you to talk about Ginsburg. Well, at first I didn't even know which Ginsburg they were talking about, but they wanted my reflections on. So it put me in a difficult spot. I, I, I certainly tried to um, handle it calmly, but um, my comments on Ruth Bader Ginsburg were, were not very well thought out because I literally had no time to think about it. Unlike your comments today, which were on point, wise, sagacious, <laughs> any other $50 word you want to use, Peter Schweitzer is uh, the man. And I think he raised an incredibly important point about the possible ramifications about what these the political incentives to encourage the protest and what it actually may lead to. And I'll just close with this one thought and the stat actually shared uh, when I was speaking last week. But it's that law enforcement is actually – consider this from 2020 – the experience that law enforcement have had since this summer of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter, there's a lot of fear of them out there. Uh, retirements yeah. increased as much as 35%. Early retirements increased as much as 35%. Recruitment is down 5%. So what you've got out there now in the law enforcement community in many respects is a discouraged and disheartened and, and it's sort of a reluctance to engage because they don't think that they'll be backed by their supporters. And I think if you add a cultural component to it, as you would in a Roe v. Wade 
type support or type debate, uh, type protest like you had with Black Lives Matter, potentially, I think, is some interesting similarities. So that's just something to watch for. Uh, he's Peter Schweitzer. I'm Eric Eggers. We both say thank you for listening to this episode of The Drill Down. You can check out any of the articles that we have, investigative research, original reporting, and more episodes of this podcast, if you like it, at thedrilldown.com.